Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to the second episode of the Spooky Kid Podcast. This time, it's Grace's mandate. She's going to be talking about Umbrella Academy, book one, so we hope you enjoy. Today we're going to be talking about book one, but there will be spoilers for both the book and season one of the Netflix series. While I love the Netflix show because it has amazing music, it's a more diverse cast, it's super gay, I thought there would be fewer people that knew about the book series, and having read the books enhanced my enjoyment of the Netflix series. The Umbrella Academy Apocalypse Suite is the first comic book limited series of The Umbrella Academy. It was created and written by the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, Gerard Way, and illustrated by the Brazilian artist Gabrielle Ba. The series ran for six issues from September 2007 to February 2008. The book opens explaining that on the same day, 43 children around the world were born to women who were not pregnant. The surviving babies were either abandoned or put up for adoption. Inventor and space alien living on Earth, Sir Reginald Hargreaves, set out to adopt as many of the babies as he could. He adopted seven of them and lovingly named them number one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. When asked why he adopted the children, he said to save the world. So guys, let's uh, let's talk about Reggie. Lovingly named is a very liberal use of Hargreaves, I think. There's nothing really loving about the guy, huh? No, he's uh, definitely the least likable of, of all the, the cast of characters that we have. Least redeeming at the very least. He's very much like just an ends justify the means kind of guy. He doesn't really care about the kids in any fashion. He picks favorites and he emotionally abuses almost all of them. So it's kind of hard to talk about him in any way other than this guy sucks. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from a diary entry that he wrote that breaks down the kids and their superpowers. Number one, enhanced physical strength and resilience, excels at everything he tries, particularly aviation and marksmanship, dedication bordering on inhuman, ruthless leadership abilities, my favorite. So right off the bat, deciding who's his favorite. Number two, an insolent brat. Ability to hold breath indefinitely is of dubious, if any, use. Not bad with a knife, as illustrated by the amount of gashes in the Caravaggio. 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 Predictably reckless. Number three. Insufferable, narcissistic creature, but extremely useful. She lies with appalling ease. Number four, development of psychic abilities stunted by fretful, morbid temperament. Inexplicable resemblance to an Ingmar Bergman extra. Who is that? He's, um, I looked it up. He's a director. So it's like a, a film extra. And I think it's kind of like, he looks like a vampire is basically what he's saying. Oh, that checks out. Yeah. Okay. Number five, disappeared several days ago. No great loss. Woof. <laughs> I thought that meant, I always mix up the numbers. I know five is like always referred to as five. But for some reason, I thought he meant Ben or six. I was like, wow, he just doesn't care that somebody died. That would be vicious. Yeah, but it wouldn't be too far off from what he's like known for, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. Here's number six. Gruesome but fascinating. Easily manipulated due to enthusiastic, if naive, nature. Must learn to suppress my nausea in order to study further. Nauseous around kids. Yeah, well, tentacles, really. Okay, yeah. But for an alien... 
it's kind of weird, I think. I don't know a lot about aliens, but... Right. Yeah. What a hypocrite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of sucks. Yep. And the most vicious read of them all, number seven, no discernible talents, some enthusiasm for music, but mediocre skill, can hardly even hobble through a Paganini caprice. Utterly useless. Paganini? Paganini. Panini. No! Panini. Panini caprici. A caprese panini. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I could go for that. We're very Italian. Yeah, so pretty rough stuff. In a, in a way that's not even what you would consider notes from some, uh, from say, a biologist in the field. It's it's more personal than that, which makes it even worse. Yeah, I was going to say at first it's almost clinical, but it's not. If it was clinical, he wouldn't have useless or... Yeah, no, there's too much opinion in there for it to be useful. He's just being lawful. And not a nice opinion to be had. Aside from the favorite, but even that's in its own way screwed up. I guess you could chalk it up to a person personality flaw, but it's more of a human personality flaw, and the fact that he's an alien seems to uh, <laughs> contradict that being uh, possible. Maybe that's why he sucks so much, is because he's an alien, but I don't know. There's some cool aliens out there in the medias. And we don't really know any of his history, so it's possible that this was learned behavior over years and decades and eons, who knows. Yeah, and it just, he says that he adopted all these children to save the world, but I mean, this is kind Kind of a spoiler already, but we already said that we're going to do spoilers. His children caused the end of the world and stopped it. So he didn't even, I, I don't know, his... He made and solved the problem at the same time. Yeah. I don't know what he would accomplish by treating them so poorly. I feel like it would only make them less likely to have any um, connection to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's obviously a big talking point of the characters in the series is how he treated all the kids. Yeah. Definitely not a lot to be had. So I'm going to give a little bit of a summary of the characters and what we're going to be calling them throughout the rest of the episode because it's too difficult to do the numbers and their superhero names are just okay. Number one, aka Space Boy, aka Luther. Number two, aka Kraken, aka Diego. Number three, aka The Rumor, aka Allison. Number four, aka Seance, aka Klaus. Number five, aka The Boy, aka Five. Number six, aka The Horror, aka Ben. And number seven, aka Vanya, who will eventually be known as the White Violin, but that wasn't her superhero name growing up. So let's uh, jump into the actual book. We're fast forwarding from their birth so they're all 10 years old, and we're in Paris. A man falls to his death from the Eiffel Tower. Luther explains to a police officer that the Eiffel Tower has, quote, gone insane and must be stopped at all costs. Luther, Diego, Allison, Klaus, and Ben team up to try to defeat the tower, but it launches itself into space, revealing it has been a spaceship the entire time. Of course. Obviously. Duh. Number seven is in a plane with Hargreaves watching the battle and asks why she can't go down and, quote, play with the others. And Hargreave says, well, there's just nothing special about you. She also asked where number five is, and he answers, the future, I presume, run away from home, no doubt. I can't be sure, nor can I be bothered. After the tower takes off into space, Luther tells Hargreaves that one day he wants to go to space, and Hargreaves assured him that he will. Fast forward 20 years, and we are on the moon with Luther. It is revealed through pictures and news clippings that he was the first child to go to space. 
We also learn that on a mission to Mars, he was critically injured and Hargreaves performed experimental surgery on him to save his life. When we see Luther, it looks as if his head was transplanted onto the body of a giant space gorilla. He gets a call from Pogo and returns to Earth. So, should we uh, discuss Luther? The favorite? The the favorite quote-unquote son of a borderline psychopath. But Luther is not great. He's definitely, he's almost like a military man. He just is all about duty and like his purpose being the leader of this group that hasn't been together for, what, 20 years? So he's like 30 now? Yeah, they're all 30. I don't know if he's like holding on to this popularity he had when he was a kid, but he seems to be to me a bully that bullies everyone around because he's the biggest and the strongest. Yeah. Luther doesn't have a whole lot of redeeming qualities, but it also seems, and you kind of hinted at this, that he might be the most damaged just because he's the only one who's stuck around. Well, let's let's not go setting that bar <laughs> right off the bat because there's, there's plenty to get into with everybody else, but I think Luther definitely has the biggest conflict between being a leader while also trying to maintain the approval of Hargreaves. Above everybody else, no one really is that concerned with either of those uh, perceptions. So he has to deal with that on his own. That's fair. He has very little like self purpose i think everything he does is either for again duty or hargreaves even after he passes yeah he doesn't have a really strong sense of self he gets lost when hargreaves dies and he gets lost even before that when he loses his body he has a strong identity crisis going on Mm-hmm. which makes him pretty um, difficult and wouldn't make for a good leader because you have to know yourself really well and know other people and have emotional intelligence and he is lacking in all of those areas. Back on Earth, Vanya gets a phone call from an unknown person telling her that Hargreaves is dead. There's a book on her nightstand called Extraordinary, My Life as Number Seven. The person on the phone says they didn't expect she would be upset about his death because, quote, you wrote a lot of nasty things about your family in that book of yours. Then the person offers her a position as first chair violinist in an orchestra. When Vanya asked why, the person on the other line says revenge. Luther returns home to see Pogo, who is a talking chimp, and number five, who has not aged a day since he disappeared 20 years ago at the age of 10, in Hargreaves' office. They tell him Hargreaves is dead and that something worse is coming. Do you guys want to talk about Pogo? I love Pogo. He's such a counter, I think, to Hargreaves, where Pogo just adds a lot of empathy and like compassion for the kids, where it's entirely lacking with Hargreaves. And he's a talking chimp, which is super cute. Yeah, yeah. And he's really cute in the comics. I, I like him. Um, but he's definitely a better father figure to the kids than Hargreaves. Definitely, yeah. I was just going to say, I don't know how much of a role he had necessarily with the kids being raised, unless that's explained more in the later books, but he seems to be around enough when the kids are upset because he talks to Vanya at one point. That scene is the emotional core of the entire thing, I think. Did we want to explain that scene a little bit? Sure, yeah. So Vanya is crying and smashing her violin, and she says... I'm so worthless. There's nothing special about me. I'm not like the others. I can't do anything. And Pogo is in her room and he says, you're right. You're not like the others. You don't need to destroy things to prove yourself. You are special. And that's why there are teardrops on that that page of the book. (laughs) 
it's it's uh, just a very pure thing to say to somebody. Yeah, it's just about the perfect thing to say. Coming from a talking chimp, you know, it's just like it's it's so crazy, but it works. It's I guess a little bit ironic that he's the most human, but he's not a human. Right. That might be what I'm getting at with bringing up he's a chimp because it doesn't really matter. But nobody talks about he it. He acts more. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one. There's also other chimps too, which I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. We'll get into it later, but there's a like a crime scene and there's like chimp detectives and I want to live in that world. Me too. I think Hargreaves created a kind of serum to make chimps more um, like able to speak English and do certain things because I think that same serum is what ultimately saved Luther and made him part gorilla or I guess chimp or ape or something. Was it a serum or did he like literally like transplant his body onto or his head onto the space gorilla's body? I don't know. They don't really explain it. I don't think in the first book unless I'm, i missed something no no they don't explain it very well it's just that news clipping so he does say it's surgery but i think that he uh hargreaves did do experiments on chimps including pogo in order to make them uh communicate with humans and we don't really know that until we see later on in that book that when five puts on hargreaves monocle it shows pogo's past and he's getting like brutally experimented on as a baby yeah yeah that was so sad um yeah so the monocle i read up on it because i was kind of confused about that but i guess when you look at someone the monocle shows you everything about them it's a lot of pressure yeah which makes his diary entries even worse because he knows everything about them and he still writes those terrible things oh you're right he like knows the emotions that they're going through and how they feel and is it everything about them up until the current moment or is it their entire history I'm assuming it's their entire history because Five looks at the adult Pogo and sees him as a baby getting experimented on. Right, but I mean entire history beyond the present. Oh, the, like the future. I Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of things left unexplained, which I like it, but I think it frustrates some people. That things are not explained. Yeah. I think that could be a good thing, though, to not explain things. Right. I think uh, in the first episode, we talked about how that's uh, it's going to be the case with a lot of art that resonates. You still have pieces that are left for the audience to interact with and figure out their own solution to. Everything we talk about is going to have some black turtles. <laughs> right. I don't know if things are not explained in this because he meant to not explain them like the turtles hmm. like he intentionally did that or if they just haven't gotten to it yet either is interesting but i guess we'll see how it develops in later books too yeah all i can say is it doesn't seem like it's an accident i think that gerard the the author likely has all these answers but he's just going to selectively reveal them or not reveal them as the books go on or even as the tv show goes on because he has a hand in writing that as well and he actually has revealed certain things in the TV show that answers questions that I had about the book. Hmm. I'll be very cryptic about that. Keep the mystery. Getting back to Pogo really quick, I, I just want to say that because he's technically an experiment uh, of Hargreaves, that it's unfortunate uh, his empathy doesn't translate or it doesn't rub off on him in any way, given that it's not that he, he couldn't see that interaction happen between Pogo and the kids. It's that he chooses not to shape his own dealings with them to, to fit more of that, that role because... 
we don't really know, but it's just, it's clear that it's not a harmful way to be. It's not going to make them less capable of saving the world. To be empathetic with them or to like treat them as people essentially. Right. Yeah. I think he probably sees what Pogo's doing and then does the opposite because I think he thinks that they need a sort of discipline force. Yeah, because I don't think he really believes the kids as kids he sees them more as an end to a means and pogo sees them as these superpowered children you know he's way more like professor xavier from the x-men he's like a teacher but he acknowledges that they have abilities and and with that type of character it's hard to know if fate is intrinsically wrapped around them because they have all this knowledge or if fate is a separate mechanism that they happen to think that they can predict or uh, carve a path toward certain outcomes as far as how he sets the kids up as you know for saving the world and uh, with Professor X and how he handles the X-Men. That's that's some next level thinking about it. Well, because I was thinking about five and and initially I thought that five had to be the main character because he knew everything or assumed he knew everything about the future. But thinking back about Hargreaves and his monocle and all these different inventions and creations that he brought to, to Earth or created on Earth, it seems that he has more of a connection with fate if you want to think of fate as a character and he's at least more directly able to steer the the kids into a get to them get them to a end result that he wants or thinks is appropriate more so than five it's different in the book but in the tv show it's um, revealed that hargreaves killed himself in order for them all to reassemble it's not clear how he dies in the book but that goes along with manipulating situations in order to get the correct result kind of the the ends justify the means like chris said but also being omniscient right and, and we don't know how far that that stretches but it's it's clear that he technically would have the most insight in into things for sure because five might know the future but hargreaves knows each each of his children personally on a level that five will never know right and five knows that the apocalypse happens and he has a date but he doesn't know how or why the world ends so his his knowledge is pretty limited but it's interesting that Hargreaves knows. Like, how does he know? I don't know if he does know. Well, because he says save the world. That's why he adopted the kids. Did he say that just because they were going to be like the Avengers, like Earth's protectors, or that he knew there was going to be a date that had to be changed? That's a good question. And there's no clear answer to it because, yeah, it could just be something to say in that look to these this group in order to uh, provide, like you were saying, protection uh, in, in times of of clear danger or when when th- things seem to be coming to an Armageddon uh, event. Something to think about for sure. Definitely. All right, back to the book. It's the next day and Allison shows up at the academy. She is standing under a statue which is memorializing Ben. She tells Luther that what happened to Ben was not his fault, even though everyone blames him. She also reveals that she and her husband are getting a divorce and her husband got full custody of their daughter, Claire. Speaking of unanswered questions, let's uh, discuss what we know about Ben. There's very little to be said, unfortunately, about Ben. Apparently, he makes Hargreaves nauseous, which is good because Hargreaves sucks. He can summon tentacles. I don't really get how it works, but he can. And 
he's dead, and that's all I got. We don't know much about Ben, except that he's a sweet boy. Yeah, he's a good, naive boy. Ben has the ability to open up a portal to a Lovecraftian underworld to summon creatures, usually displayed as tentacles coming out from his chest. I always thought he just, like, turned into the tentacles. Like, it was his, like, biology or something. I know. I thought that, too, but, um... He's the Kirby of the group. What? (laughs) Yeah. Kirby's stomach is its own pocket dimension, and essentially Ben has the same ability, but it's... He just... Instead of opening his mouth, he's just opening up his abdomen. Like, actually, it's not just he has a big stomach. He's, like, sucking up things into, like, a wormhole. Yeah, more or less, as far as I understand. I, I, I'm not entirely sure what Nintendo has to say about that, but that's that's what uh, I believe to be canon. Wow. I hope it is. That makes Kirby a lot more intimidating now. And when, like, in Smash Bros, when you're, like, sucking up this other character, you're just bringing him into this deep, dark void. It's kind of... It's kind of messed up. That's all I gotta say. Yeah. To be fair, it seems like he is a, a very important part of the team, and it's I I believe it would be hard to really have them unify without him being there. I think his death was the the final straw for them all breaking up. It seems like that was they're having a hard time talking about it. They just keep saying like what happened to Ben instead of you know they never we never know how he died. We just know it was a mission and people blame Luther, which I was wondering at one point if. It was the same mission where Luther lost his body, but I don't know. And at that point, how do you blame a guy that loses his whole body? (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty rough, but I don't put it above any of them to blame him anyway. Right. I I could definitely see any one of them doing that, especially uh, Diego. The way they're acting about his death and about him not being around anymore, he seems to be the most like a brother to them. And I don't know, again, if that's just me looking for something that isn't there, but they're all mourning him still, which is interesting to say the least. Um, Because like they don't, they obviously don't care much about heart griefs, but Ben has affected them. And reading through, it's almost that when you get to the point where we're at Hargreaves, Hargreaves' funeral, you can process that uh, the emotional toll that ben, the loss of Ben has put on the team, and that seems to shine through beyond Hargreaves not being there. I think his innocence has something to do with that too, both metaphorically, their loss of innocence, but also they lost the only person that was maybe giving them any joy in the group. Yeah, didn't they break up after Ben died? Yeah, pretty much. So if that was necessarily because they were mad at Luther or if they were sad that Ben was gone or both, it was a big moment for them as people. Yeah, they kind of got trauma dogpiled. (laughs) It's like they had an abusive upbringing and then their brother dies. And one of the other brothers almost dies too. Yeah, one is missing. Right, one is missing. One almost... Well, okay, I I was assuming that Luther got injured on that same mission. We don't know if that's true or not. But if it was, then yeah, just add it to the list. Right, right. It's a lot. So to get back to the book, the next person to arrive at the funeral is Klaus with the best line of the book. You know what I love about funerals? Everything I own is black. I can instantly relate to that. And it says pretty much everything about his character great introduction yes the same also everything on is black or very very dark but the fact that he's also floating it makes it and he's barefoot so it it's such a it's a huge first impression on one of the best characters in the book 
I don't know if they talk about this in book one. I don't think they do. In order for his powers to work, he has to be barefoot. Oh, really? I thought it was more he just liked being barefoot. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, but yeah, so he is unable to use his powers when he has shoes on. So by being barefoot, he's technically grounded. My only question is that if he's floating and barefoot, how would that also not limit him? I mean, he's got to have somewhere for the souls to go. I'm mad. I'm upset. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad joke. No, that was good. That was, that was a very Walker joke. Admitting it is the first step. You're right. For, uh, I'm on the road <laughs> yeah. to recovery. Speaking of recovery, Klaus does have quite a substance use problem. That was a hard turn. He likes the drugs a lot. Yes, but it also provides comedy, so I'm torn. <laughs> if you like really think about it, it's kind of sad, but if you just see it at face value, you're like, huh, that's funny. Because he has some good lines about it. There's like a line later where Klaus is talking to Allison, and they're talking about going out to look for Vanya, I believe, and he says he's going because he's done so much cocaine when he closes his eyes he sees centipedes and his face when he says that is so deadpan his face doesn't change between the panels just him looking thousand miles away looking at centipedes it's great i think he actually says speed oh speed yeah he does speed yeah that's it and he eats speed he was saying he eats the speed right and i don't know why but the eat got <laughs> so good that phrasing makes it seem like he has to take a lot of whatever it is to get to that state of high oh sure possibly yeah but he's still standing and able to say i'm coming with you because all i see are centipedes <laughs> true i would say that's probably second best line in the whole thing so klaus gets number one and number two and pogo with his lovely quote maybe gets three right klaus is not wholesome at all like if we're comparing them but yeah very quotable guy he's also the the big biggest uh, anchor as far as being actively involved with the team and helping them during the late, later fights with the robots I'm thinking of specifically, where they're all, I believe it's him, Luther, and Allison are hiding behind an overturned truck, and he more or less is saying that he doesn't want to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He does a lot more later on, like surprisingly more. But yeah, in that scene, he's useless. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't even really know what his powers are, to be honest. I know he can levitate and he can talk to the dead. He has a lot of powers, which we kind of find out as we go on in the book. They kind of just keep adding something to it without really explaining it, which is fine. You kind of, it's like a show, don't tell. But I guess he has like telekinesis and then he can like host ghosts that like take over his body which you, you re they hint at later when they're fighting the eiffel tower which just sounds hilarious when i'm saying it out loud pretty ridiculous they're all wearing these like levitation belts that hargreaves invented so they're all flying he's trying to summon the guy who actually created the eiffel tower in order to get information from him which doesn't actually end up working but as he's trying you see ben flying kind of under him using his tentacles to hold up a ouija board for klaus and it's so cute oh i i miss that that is really cute i'll post a picture on instagram of it i don't know if he always has to use a ouija board but I think that's what his hand tattoos, one that says hello and one that says goodbye, is a, a Ouija board reference. Oh, I thought it was just him being sassy. I think it works both ways. Yeah, I guess it's double double meaning. And maybe why he has those tattoos is how he can summon it without the Ouija board. Kind of like a full metal alchemist moment. Oh, 
Good connection. I love it. It's great. Thank you. That's like my one anime reference I can make. So there you go. Well, I made you watch Beastars too. So we can, we'll, we'll find something later that we can talk about. Furry Twilight. Beastars. <laughs> yeah. Ben and Klaus seem kind of close. I don't know if that's me still reacting from the show, but they seem like they have a little bit of history in um, the books. They do have a connection. I think they're the two creepy siblings. Ben doesn't embrace it as much as Klaus does, but even when they show the picture of all the babies lined up, Ben and Klaus are kind of like gray colored and everyone else is more white person flesh toned. Yeah, Klaus is straight up white, which I think in my notes I wrote Klaus looking pale as a baby. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like the monster siblings in a way. Yeah, they have a, they have a good duo going. And yeah, in the show, they're better connected because Klaus can summon Ben using his powers. But as a minor spoiler, they do have that sort of relationship in the later books. That's good. I, I'm glad that that carries through. I think it's important for Ben to still be around, not just in memory, but also to have some kind of role because he is a character worth having in the in the uh, in the book right for sure definitely so is this the part where i confess about comic-con yeah we can get into it grace here is a big big fan of clouds which is we could almost say is the elephant in the room and i'm surprised we haven't talked about it yet would you like to uh to expand upon that grace yeah well i'm wearing a klaus t-shirt right now yes that is true and uh in the before times we all went to the chicago comic-con which is also known as c2e2 and i dressed up as klaus I, um, (laughs) it's so embarrassing. The actor who plays Klaus in the Netflix series was there. And originally I wasn't planning on, you know, taking a picture or getting his autograph or anything. But when he got there, I got pretty excited. So I waited in line for too long. You were gone a while. And (laughs) was gone about an hour, just panicking. So I get to the front of the line and I realize I haven't prepared anything to say to him. And (laughs) so embarrassing. I just like freeze and he says to me, because I'm dressed as a character he plays on TV, he says, hi, Klaus. And I say, uh, hi, Klaus. And then I black out, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say to him. I didn't realize quite how embarrassing it would be to be dressed as him and meeting him. I'm sure it was flattering. I hope it was flattering, but I felt like a big goober. Your outfit was pretty good. It was a good outfit. I mean, it's a good thing that he noticed I was dressed like him. It would be worse if he didn't. It'd be like, eh, eh, you see, look. Wait, eh? hang on. Take a second to take all this in. Look at me. You're telling me I wore lace-up pants for nothing? (laughs) And that sweet, sweet Irish accent. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. That made it worse because I could understand him, but sometimes when I'm talking to people with accents, I instinctively also want to have an accent. It's a bad flaw that I have. And so I just kind of froze up like Donald Glover in Community when he's meeting the guy from Reading Rainbow and yeah, just completely lost it. But at the end, you did get a signed photograph. And I touched his hand. It's really soft. And Grace hasn't washed her hand since. (laughs) No, it's becoming a problem, but we try not to talk about it. Yeah, it's... uh... COVID COVID aside, it's been a real problem. I didn't catch COVID. (laughs) Maybe there's something there. Maybe. All right, now I'm done embarrassing myself. Let's move on. Story time with Grace. Catch you next time. Oh, man. Chris's brother was also there. We love you, Al. Aw. 
He was so happy to be there. Yeah, shout out to Al. So back to the book. We are at a nearby carnival, and a bunch of flying robots, the Terminots, appear out of nowhere, warning civilians who really don't care that the Umbrella Academy is likely going to reunite. Jump cut to number five. It's a flashback of him in an apocalyptic wasteland, and he says, Dad always warned me, not to go too far into the future because he told me I could never go back. And even though I hated and tried to prove him wrong, I knew I shouldn't have run away from home because what I found wasn't just a place where I could hide. What I found was the end of the world. Number five said it took him a while to realize he was the only person left alive. And at first he really enjoyed being able to do whatever he wanted. Quote, there was no one to tell you what to do, no one to make you feel small, no one to make you wear a mask. He did eventually realize that this was a terrible situation. He went to the library and found the book written by Vanya. He says, I saw how bad things had gotten, how everything had gone wrong, how number six had died, how we had failed, and I decided to go back. It took him 50 years to figure out how to get back, but eventually, with the help of a mannequin named Dolores, he figured it out. Something went wrong along the way, and he is now back to the present, but in a 10-year-old's body. So, it looks like we do get past COVID. You know, nobody, uh, if we're going off of what Five is saying, no one to wait, make you wear a mask, if we want to take that more literally. Wow! Yeah, it's good to know. But everyone's dead. Oh, dang it, Chris. You're right. But not from COVID. <laughs> Wear a mask. <laughs> Will we never escape this nightmare? <laughs> we have to. So is five an anti-masker? That's another good question. I, I had that same thought. Let's try not to get too far and do it. Oh, wear a mask. Not because Hargreaves told you to, but because doctors do. So five definitely brings a, a more existential edge to things. I, I do say so myself. I'm, I'm pretty fond of uh, that line about not only finding a place to hide, but finding the end of the world. Um, it is, uh, it, it's, it's very, a very singular type of loneliness, which is you know, obviously beyond being cut off from people. There's just literally no one. And, uh, that I think makes Five's situation and his whole outlook a pretty interesting thing to, to process and to see his reaction to things. So to have his character reunite with everybody, it's interesting to see how he behaves with all of his siblings because of, of what he's been through. He definitely has a lot more agency than all the other characters because obviously he saw what happened if they don't fix this. So he's the only one really taking it seriously. Right. Saw and also felt the impact. Yeah, experienced. Right. But on an emotional level. And maybe I, I, th I wonder if that is more what's driving him. Him, as opposed to the reality of the, of things, it's more of his avoidance of that emotional harm potentially. Oh, like he doesn't want to have to experience that again, right? And, and know that as his how he he'll live out the rest of his days. I mean, that seems it's probably the bleakest thing that one could imagine, especially as as a, like a human, because we're like social beings, right? That's what they tell us. <laughs> Yeah, like solitary confinement, I think, is one of the like roughest um, punishments you could like have to experience in life. So the fact that he had to do that for 50 years is insane. And for him to not be just like a, a blubbering madman is kind of impressive. Right. There is a brief discussion between him and, and Pogo as to whether he truly is insane. But it really seems like he's determined to maintain the world as it is, despite how things are. He still wants to save the world, 
even though the world is kind of a screwed up place. Right, and it's not like Luther, he's not trying to save the world to prove anything to anybody. It's a much more genuine crusade for him, and that to me is what what makes him a pretty compelling character, and why I, I think initially my thought was that, oh, he has to be the main character. I can jump ahead a little bit, because there's a pretty good scene that I think you guys are referring to where Five and Pogo are using those levitation belts to fly around the city to find what they think might have caused the apocalypse. Pogo asks Five if it's possible he was driven insane and imagined apocalypse, and Five says it's possible, but quote, if I'm wrong, we're guilty of trying to save the world from a false alarm, but if I'm right, isn't the world worth saving? And I think that encapsulates what he's all about. And like you said, he's not trying to save the world because that's his only identity, like Luther. One thing about the show, that sequence where he does get stuck in the apocalypse was I was watching it with my siblings and my dad was kind of walking around the house doing other things, but that scene stopped him in his tracks and he just kind of whispers to himself, not knowing anyone is listening or talking to him. He just goes, oh no, he's stuck. And then he was like, well, what are you guys watching? What's what's going on? But he immediately was like, oh, that that is a bad situation to be in. I, I feel bad for this child who's crying in rubble and sees everyone dead around him. And your dad's not like really into that stuff. Like those kind of shows, right? Yeah, not really. It's not it's not necessarily his cup of tea. He likes nonfiction. He loves a documentary or anything Italian. But yeah, so your your dad was uh very taken with five, huh? I mean, I don't know if he thinks of five as his favorite character, but that scene was what got him into the series. And it had good music too, I forgetting what was playing. Yeah, Run Boy Run, which is also the title of that episode. It's a great song. I still use it to work out. But yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, I think, all, a whole combination of things. The the effect was done well. The the you know the actor did a good job in that those moments, and the score obviously helped a lot with the energy uh, and the frantic nature of of what was going on. It's probably the best scene in the first season. Agreed. Any final thoughts on five? So we talked about him like going back and forwards in the time. So that's his power, right? Because in the show, not to get too much into the show, but it seems like he just makes portals. Is what he's doing, like, just time traveling to different, like, points? I think in the book they describe it as he can travel through time and space. Because I even remember at one point when he was a kid training, Hargreaves said something along the lines of space jumps are easy, but time jumps are more permanent. And that was kind of in a lead up to him getting stuck. In a way, those concepts, to me at least, should be considered one and the same. The the way that Einstein defined space-time and relativity, those two things are really part of a whole. So the next person to show up for the eventual funeral is Diego. He immediately starts arguing with the group, shaming Allison for leaving and starting a family when he was out being a crime-fighting vigilante and telling Luther that he isn't the boss of him anymore. Shortly after, the funeral begins and no one has anything to say except the children's mother. Quote, he wasn't the best father and an even worse husband, but if he was guilty of anything, it was caring for the world so much that he sacrificed his personal relationships. Unfortunately, he never asked any of us how we felt about it. Diego is visibly upset by this, and he rips off his mother's coat to reveal 
that she is not a human. She is kind of like one of those plastic torsos that you see in a doctor's office or a classroom that shows all the organs stacked on top of each other, and then that torso is on top of a dress form. So the mom starts to cry because you can now see her full form, and Diego says, everything is a lie. Hargreaves left us with a mausoleum full of questions and a piece of plastic for a mother. Those tears aren't even real. Pretty strong entrance, too. Just not as likable as Klaus's. That's true. A lot of personality all at once, but none of it's very fun. It just happens to be pointed in the hateful direction. Also, the mom doesn't have arms. Well, she says she didn't wear the arms because they're uncomfortable. Right. She has them, but like in that opening scene of her, she's literally just like a head and body, not no limbs. Hang on. How, as a robot, can you tell me that having appendages is uncomfortable? And how did she put the coat on? Uh, pass. How'd the coat stay on? Yeah, and how does she put the arms on? That's right. Maybe Pogo does it? I didn't, I wasn't super clear where she had come from. If she came from the house, I assume she must have, because where else would a mechanical woman like that go? But um, yeah, I wasn't super clear. It was just very upsetting. Very upsetting. She she could also be a transformer of some kind, hidden away as, as a, a fixture within the house and then... Turned into like a lamp or something. Uh, maybe something more substantial, <laughs> like a chest of drawers or... Or a, this is uh, a Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah, like the wardrobe. Right. Speaking of Transformers, no, nope, never mind. Don't don't need to get on that tangent. Nope, erase it. Forget it. But Diego is is definitely a character to think about, but not one that I consider to be my favorite or or one that I would necessarily want to quote unquote you know meet that type of person. He's his problems are understandable as with everybody's. He unfortunately has the least agreeable way of dealing with them. And it's a way that it's hard to empathize with his character. Yeah, the show gives him a lot more depth and humanity. He really is just a big ball of anger in the first comic, except for his soft spot for Vanya, which we'll get into later. Um, But in my notes, I wrote, he's like Batman, except his dad was alive for the whole childhood and it sucked. His parents are not dead. But he still turned out crappy. Yeah. He, I guess what I'm saying is he, he does have what they call in season two of the show, a hero complex. He, he wants to do good, but he doesn't go about it in any way that's very constructive. Like Luther wants to do good, but for his dad and for approval and for a sense of self. For recognition. Yeah. And then Diego does good for the sake of doing good, but because he's a vigilante, there's kind of a moral question going on. He'll often, or more more often than not, consider the path of least resistance regardless of, like you said, Grace, the moral implication. Yeah. He, like everything he said, even in that quote, he's not wrong. He's just not going about things in a way that makes him at all agreeable. Right. How are any of his siblings supposed to piggyback off of that sentiment when they might agree with it, but at the same point in time, like you said, Grace, he's not being constructive. It's just about demolish, tear down, rip it apart, kill it, etc. I mean, I could definitely get in those moods. But to exist in that constant state, it's it seems impossible, if not entirely detrimental to your psyche. He needs a lot of therapy. They all do, but Diego has uh, got a lot to work out. If we're talking D&D alignment scale, Diego is chaotic good, I think, because he wants to do good. He's just 
flies by the seat of his pants. And like you guys were saying, he's really like passionate about it. But again, like how you were saying, Grace, he's not very constructive with it. He kind of just does what he feels at the time and then deals with the repercussions later. Yeah, he is a chaotic good. Or, or he doesn't deal and leaves uh, destruction and, you know, things will end up where they are. And it is his responsibility is not to reassemble whatever it is that, that he's uh, torn down. In a way, he's kind of inherited the ends justify the means attitude of his dad without realizing it. What is interesting is the difference between book Diego and TV Diego and how TV Diego has a very loving relationship with their mom, whereas book Diego seems to have nothing but spite towards her. I don't want to get too much into the the show versus the book but it's a very compassionate relationship in the show with him and the mom i don't know what exactly she did in the book to make him so i guess yeah spiteful towards her but something must have happened i was gonna argue that because he hates hargreaves so completely that anything that happened to be of his creation uh, you know including his siblings and their mother and pogo i guess which that's not really shown but i would assume that is his attitude he has to have a little bit of disdain and hatred for yeah i agree it's just a lot of effort in in a way of getting back at someone who is now deceased and you would think that moving forward he would he would have an easier time letting some things go but at least in this book that has not happened yet yeah there's a lot of misplaced energy with him he's taken out on everyone that wasn't like directly involved i guess so we're back to vanya she goes to the Icarus Theater, and she's instructed to play by the conductor. Him and his creepy masked orchestra applaud after she finishes playing, and the conductor tells her that he has composed a piece of music that could bring about the end of the world. Vanya tells him, essentially, to F off, and the conductor says to one of his musicians, quote, she is most likely going to go to her family for comfort, in which case we should expect her back very soon, end quote. Back at the academy, the team hears an explosion in the distance. Klaus flies up to see that the carnival is on fire. Luther knows instinctively that it's the robots that were programmed by their enemy, Dr. Terminal, to activate if the Umbrella Academy ever reunites. They realize that that means Vanya must be close by. Allison has a flashback to when she was a kid. She was kidnapped by Dr. Terminal, who was diagnosed with a rare disease that eats a person from the nervous system to the brain. He was given two months to live by doctors, so he created a device that could convert matter into energy that would feed the disease and keep him alive. He then returned to the doctor's office and devoured the doctors with his device. He was incarcerated and escaped by absorbing a reporter, the cell bars, all of the guards, and the warden. Afterward, he kidnapped Allison and devoured one of her arms before getting defeated by Luther. We actually don't know how she ends up with two arms again, but likely she was able to use her powers in some way to get it back. So she kind of leaned over to the nub and said, I heard a rumor that I had another arm again. I actually think so, yeah. When I first read the book, I thought she just had mind control powers, so she was able to convince anyone of anything, but it seems like she can actually cause physical things to occur just with her voice. It's hard to have a character that that can bend reality that much, and I think that there's a lot of plot holes because of that. There were even memes where people said the series would be one page long if they just said Allison said, I heard a rumor there wasn't an apocalypse. For those of you who haven't read the books or watched the show, Allison is a, I guess you would call her a reality bender. 
She can change how things occur by saying, I heard a rumor that, and then dot, dot, dot. So when they were fighting the Eiffel Tower, she said something along the lines of, I heard a rumor that the Louvre is giving away paintings. And that cleared the crowd because everyone all of a sudden believed that the Louvre was giving out paintings. But then I was trying to figure out if that meant that the Louvre actually was giving out paintings or if she just made everyone believe it. That's where I have problems with her powers because I don't really know what they can do. Yeah. I think of all the characters, she has the most unanswered questions regarding her powers. Because she, like you were saying, Grace, she could potentially end the whole story in like a minute if she were to say, I heard a rumor that there was no apocalypse, then that's it. But she might have, because a lot of times in media, there are like levels of reality bending. Sometimes people can't change everything and anything, but they can small time change things. Like there's this uh, online wiki called SCP. I know there's going to be a weird tangent, but... There are reality benders in that also. And there's this story regarding one where she can only bend reality by... She, she was an author. So there, there's this reality bender in SCP where the only way for her to bend reality but was by writing it down in a book. And she would publish it. Someone would read the ending. And that ending would happen to that person. And that was the extent of how she could change reality. So it could be something like that where maybe she could change the world. Just chooses not to doesn't think she can or she just isn't actually to. Yeah, I think that she needs better definitions to what her power is in order for her to be in order for readers and viewers to believe like have any sort of um suspension of disbelief that her powers are legitimate. And and a clarity in her case I think would provide with a better understanding of how she fits into the team because it, on one hand she's technically just a master manipulator but if we go so far as to say that she can influence reality there's bigger implications and obviously more that she could do with her ability and in conjunction with that we don't know the range of of her power so if she were to say something that's prefaced with I heard a rumor. How many people does that actually reach? If she were to say to project her voice somehow through a PA system or the radio, what have you, would that also influence people that heard that audio if it was live or if it was recorded? How does that work? Again, these are nitpicky and probably not necessary to answer, but it's still something to think about uh, that gives gives more more questions to the reader. Not that we don't already have enough, but this is just one more thing to add on to that pile. But as a as a character and going back to the, the side of a master manipulator and her re- relationship with Luther and what she does to him, I think that in and of itself is probably, it's an expression of, of her struggle, but it also shows that she's more willing to give in to these negative impulses as opposed to suppress that. And it's also, it, it, it might have been what caused her to lose both her husband and her, her, her daughter. Yeah, they don't explain it in the book how she lost her husband and daughter, but in the show, they say that she uses her powers on her daughter, and that's what causes her to lose her daughter and also get divorced from her husband because they had made a promise that she wouldn't use it. Um, And I think that that's more or less what we're supposed to infer from the books as well, is her powers are kind of ruining all of her relationships because she has this easy out. I think in the show, she says, I heard a rumor that you were very sleepy. Like, her daughter wouldn't fall asleep, and that's what she 
did, but it's a it's a slippery slope. And I think that the only limitation they do give Allison is her fear of consequences. So she won't use her power because it's kind of like when you do the three wishes with a genie, you don't 100% know how things can be interpreted when you make these commands. I just don't think it's a sufficient enough limitation to just say, oh, she's too scared to use her powers and that's why she doesn't use them. How powerful her abilities actually are, I think is less interesting than like the moral implications of using her power. Because yeah, like you were saying, that was a big thing with her daughter and her family. And, you know, there's a lot to be said if you, if anybody had the power to will whatever they wanted just by saying it, like... That would be a very chaotic world and place. So she doesn't have a whole lot of character aside from her powers, it seems. At least not that I could tell. There's some like regrets and like PTSD kind of stuff with Dr. Terminal, I think, which was interesting, but she doesn't really do a whole lot. Yeah, it, it seems like that flashback doesn't really provide evidence of a motivation for her. It's just to show that she also has a unique circumstance of trauma. That's a really good way of putting it. So, moving on with the story, Luther, Diego, Allison, and Klaus go to the carnival to try to save the children and stop the fire, while Pogo and their mother perform tests on number five to see if he's healthy from time travel and try to figure out why he's stuck in the 10-year-old's body. Vanya is in a taxi when she sees the carnival in flames and realizes her family is there. She runs in and tries to help and warn the team about what happened at the theater, but Diego tells her off before she could finish explaining and she leaves in tears. Vanya then returns to the theater and decides to join the orchestra. The conductor performs surgery on Vanya. He reveals that he stole Hargreaves' notes and possibly hinted that he was the one who killed Hargreaves. He also reveals, quote, Hargreaves ran extensive experiments on all of you while you slept, and apparently you're the most dangerous one. He also figured out the means by which to make you shine, but I think his method was much less painful than mine, end quote. So he uses surgery in order to bring out her powers. Yeah, did he just assume that she had powers and Hargreaves was hiding something? How would he have known that was the case? To have that fixation and to to maybe make that leap because clearly Hargreaves picked these seven individual children specifically and if she wasn't chosen at random then there had to be something unique it's just to if he knew exactly what that was somehow before getting Hargreaves notes it, it's not clear uh but I will say that while it is technically partially a physical surgery of her body a manipulation of her tissue and, and whatnot it also seems like there's a psychological aspect that uh, influences her, her mind in a way that, that is also in unison with what happens to the changes uh, with her body. Yeah, the art style of her transformation is really interesting. And I would ask anyone who hasn't read the book to at least check out those pages because it's very visually interesting. It's very loose. I mean, not the art style, but the way like the pages are laid out is very loose and open and things are just kind of sliding across. I think there's a sort of like a like a neuron kind of background with like the brain and a bunch of different colors and shapes and it's almost reads sort of like music I think it's very just like flowy and very you know like she's becoming a violin it seems like almost like music was making her the white violin I don't know but yeah the the whole transformation scene is very artistically impressive so after she goes through the transformation her body becomes solid white and she has 
has markings resembling a violin on her body and she's also kind of like violin shaped it's kind of sexualized like because she gets kind of that hourglass figure but it's really cool looking it's very striking for sure i mean she looks really cool she is asked to play a new violin by the conductor and she plays one note and it rips the conductor into killing him instantly so i guess what we're assumed what we can assume her power is And they elaborate more on this in the show, but she can convert sound to energy, and that's what gives her her powers. It's funny because this, her powers are almost a a parallel to Allison's in that they have the same effect if you think of your voice being sound waves, and her voice can manipulate both the minds of people and reality to some extent, whereas Vanya just has this ability to tear apart reality. That's really interesting. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Bonds them as sisters. Right, right. It, it gives them a, a more concrete connection in, in a way that, that Ben and Klaus sh- share a similar oneness. More like supernatural kind of powers, yeah. And then in a way also, I don't know, maybe I'm looking too much into it now with Ben, not Ben, sorry, with Luther and Diego, they both have more like physical powers with, I mean, Diego can just like hold his breath a long time, but there, it's more of like a physical change and they're at... odds a lot. Maybe that was just a coincidence, but it was an interesting point that now you brought up Walker. Yeah, and it it leaves Five as the odd man out. Yeah, and he kind of is. So after Vanya's transformation and after killing the conductor, she addresses the rest of the orchestra and says, tonight we end the Umbrella Academy and tomorrow we end the world. Back at the house, Diego and Luther are fighting again. Um, There was one exchange that I wanted to point out, which comes back later, where Luther says... You're still mad at the world because father doesn't love you. Diego says, he didn't love any of us, but you're still trying to impress him even after we just put him in the ground. And Luther says, I guess you're right. He didn't love me, but I haven't spent my life pretending he did like you have with Vanya. That quote solidifies that Diego and Vanya have a closer bond than we initially think because he's pretty cruel to her, but it seems to be because he's the most upset with how she represented them in the book and how she left that hurt him more than it might have hurt the others because Diego cares deeply for her. And we'll get more into that in just a little bit. So Diego storms off and talks to his crime-fighting buddy who tells them that a lot of concert violinists had gone missing. He immediately freaks out and hurries to Vanya's apartment and finds the name of the theater on a notepad. Cut to Allison and Luther watching over the city on the academy rooftop. She talks about her daughter, but Luther is too focused on the battle, and he makes her feel bad for freezing up and is worried that Allison doesn't even use her powers anymore. Allison, who's frustrated and upset about her divorce and Luther being kind of a jerk, says, I heard a rumor you wanted to kiss me since you were eight years old. Then they kiss, and we see Klaus is hovering over a head, and he had seen the whole thing. So that is a pretty messed up thing to do to your brother. That's where the moral questionability comes in with her powers because I don't know if she did it because she was lonely or if she was mad at him or what but she did it and that doesn't seem to have been his choice so it's definitely not not great yeah there's a lot of ambiguity around whether he had natural feelings for her or if she rumored him the entire time in any other 
scenario where we're talking about two people that don't have these types of powers, her just saying that line minus the I heard a rumor is a possible lead in for them to to kiss. It's not far fetched to say that, oh, that wouldn't wouldn't be a natural sort of line or something that you would see in like a movie or something. Yeah, the first time I read the book, it actually didn't click to me that she was using her power. I just thought she was saying that. Right. I, I agree that maybe for anyone else, but like she's 30 now, she has to know. Right, and, and Luther doesn't seem that he's in that kind of mood, so it's it's an odd, it's a very sharp turn. Yeah, it, I wanted to mention that this is like the first time when this happens, when she kisses him and uses her powers on him, that he shows a vulnerable side about his appearance and about how he like feels to the world. He says something, look at me, Allison, I'm like a man stuck on a giant gorilla's body or something. Like, how can I relate to you? And then she does that. So I don't know if she was doing it to make him feel better or or something, but it there's a lot to be said about it being right after he's vulnerable. She exploits an in because he was saying something along the lines of like, oh, I wish I had a wife and daughter too. But I'm too busy, you know, saving the world and doing all of this stuff. And I'm an abomination. So this is all I have. And when she he says, I want to have a wife, they show Allison's face and she immediately kind of softens and then chooses to use her power to make them have a relationship, which maybe they had normally or maybe they didn't. We don't really know. Yeah, so definitely kind of dicey. Something to think about for sure. So before anyone can process whether or not that's incest, Vanya shows up at the house with the rest of the orchestra. She plays her violin and it shatters all the academy windows. She continues to play and it destroys Ben's statue. Pogo screams when it gets destroyed and Vanya turns her attention towards Pogo. She says, you are right about me, Pogo. I am special. She then plays her violin again, which literally blows his brains out. Five witnesses all of that, looks into Vanya's eyes and realizes that Vanya is the one that's going to end the world. It was a very upsetting and gruesome scene with Pogo. Like, they don't really pull the punch there. Like, they show everything inside his head coming out. Yeah, and it's like half of the page. Yeah, it's a big, big moment. Big mood. <laughs> no. I mean, she's she ha- is expressing herself beyond just the written word. So, yeah, it's a big mood literally a big move yeah. big move coming from walker too i mean like i said up until this point her only outlet has been this book and to now be able to utilize her untapped abilities all at once really it is a big move no you're right you're right no arguments so that ends a chapter and then the new chapter opens up vanya is back in the theater practicing and diego is watching from the rafters above he jumps down and holds a knife to her throat she asks what he's doing and he says quote stopping you from doing something stupid tell me why i shouldn't slit your throat she replies because i love you and he freezes up luther allison klaus and five storm in allison tries to use her powers on vanya but Vanya slits her throat with her bow. Luther flies off with Allison, trying to get her help and save her life. Klaus, disguised as Hargreaves, taunts and berates Vanya for not even ending the world correctly. But Diego interrupts him and professes his love for Vanya. While she's distracted, Five shoots her in the head with a revolver. Klaus then admits that he wasn't actually able to summon Hargreaves 
and that he was just acting because Hargreaves was too stubborn, even beyond the grave. Yeah, and that's where I was mentioning earlier about another one of Klaus's powers that are just kind of like peppered in throughout the story that he can then like call upon the dead to like talk through him. But apparently Hargreaves is too much of a jerk to do it as a ghost. Yeah, or Klaus was high or both. Yeah, or, or that too. Yeah, Because I'm sure he's able to find a balance between using his abilities and also having a bit of a buzz going. But more often than not, I'm assuming that the scales tip in one direction. So they're able to stop Vanya, but realize her song broke off a piece of the moon and it is hurtling towards Earth. Klaus is able to stop it with his telepathy, which surprises everyone, including himself. In an epilogue, we learn that doctors saved Allison's life, but she will never speak again because her vocal cords had been completely severed. Vanya also survives getting shot in the head. Her memories and motor skills will likely still be intact, but she may never be able to play her violin again. Meanwhile, Luther, Diego, Klaus, and Five return home to see that the Eiffel Tower has fallen from the sky and completely smashed the Academy. They make some jokes, and that ends the book. I saved our Vanya discussion for the end because I think it's important to witness her entire arc before talking about her character. What are you thinking, Chris? Um, I don't know. She just seems very tragic to me. I don't know if I... Which version of her I like more. I think the show version is even more tragic because, like, nobody in the family really even like gives her the time of day like even like looks in her direction aside from allison but in the book she seemed like she had connections with some of the other characters like diego but that got thrown aside and the moment like she finally gets her powers she starts destroying the world and i don't know at, at the end with that moment before five shoots her or after he shoots her he says he just like really doesn't like vanya and i don't know it just seemed unnecessary and sad Real kick them when they're down kind of moment. Yeah, I think it was, to be fair to Five, I think it was when they all noticed the moon was hurtling towards Earth, but it's still a low blow. I think he said, I never liked you or something like that, which is just like a layer of damn. Right, and that that's worse because it's one thing for him to have harsh feelings towards her given his realization about her being the cause for the end of the world, but to say that, no, I've never liked you. Yeah, It's an extreme thing to say, and we could interpret that he actually means it or just it's just what he decides to use in the moment but for him to to be genuine about that is is probably the most upsetting thing and all the while going back to the very beginning vanya just wanted to be a kid uh with the rest of them she wanted to go down and help them and and, or or, well when when they were fighting eiffel tower she said she just wanted to go down and and play with everybody why why wasn't she able to do that and that that really never never happens at least in this book and to me like you said chris that that makes her probably the most tragic uh character because of her consistent placement as an outsider in a group of technical outcasts who are still in and of themselves forced to or have to save the world it's full of people that they might not personally be able to relate to or who might not necessarily think the best of them and yet they're still having to risk their own safety and their own lives uh for the planet it's interesting that he says she's like an outcast in a group of outcasts because that's you know she's 
technically the most normal, at least what they initially thought that she didn't have powers, but they all treat her less than because of that, which is sad that she can't even be normal in normal society, but can't be herself with her family. Right. And and do we also, as a, a reader, do we also take in that the circumstances of your birth automatically define you in that way? It's kind of hard to avoid it, but they don't make you who you are. They give you like a starting off point, I guess. I think that they are outsiders from the moment that they're birthed just because of that strange circumstance. I mean, there's an entire religion based upon someone being born in similar circumstances. So I think that they're automatically going to be the other. It's just a shame going back a little bit that as all of them grew up, they gained their own autonomy and they were rebelling against Hargreaves, but none of them rebelled to be kind to Vanya. They all were like, everything Hargreaves taught us was terrible. We hate him, but Vanya still sucks. And you're like, what? <sighs> Guys. Right, that's where I think she's so tragic. It's that even after everything, you think that would have brought them closer together, but it just made them all like individuals in like the worst kind of way. Yeah, yeah, that can be said for all of them. Even with her powers, it still feels like, without saying it, everybody in the group still thinks that Vanya will never be one of them. Because now she's too powerful to be an equal instead of not powerful enough. Or at the very least, she's least likely to want to conform to that group dynamic because she has such strong abilities that she can stand on her own. Well, thank you guys for indulging me. Yeah, thank you for for sharing uh, the book with us. I think it was, it's a quick read and it's definitely worth it. Even if you have seen the show or if you haven't and want to see the show, it's all worth it. Yeah, I think it's a great companion piece to have both. It's fun for me, particularly, to pick apart the differences between the show and the book and see where they expanded or where they, like, changed something and definitely get a lot of that in this series. Yeah, we could have a whole other episode just doing compare and contrast because there's a lot and I think each decision that they made when there's a difference adds a lot of depth one way or the other. There's a lot of discussions that could be had, but I'm super glad you guys enjoyed this superhero content. Yeah, I don't think I would have read it otherwise, but I'm glad I did because like, like we we're just saying with the differences, it's it reads more like an old timey like superhero show almost than like like a, it's not grounded. And I think that's what makes it so fun is that it's very over the top and weird and very like artistic. Yeah, the villains especially seem old school. They're very mustache twisting and curling kind of like devious villains which are a lot of fun for the people who obviously can't see us right now chris did actually twirl his mustache i did it helps it helps me think <laughs> we'll move on to a video format in the future no we won't hard pass no we won't i don't know why i said that <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been our episode on the Umbrella Academy book one, Apocalypse Suite. Tune in next month for Walker's Mandate. You can follow us on social media at Spooky Kid Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Chris, where can we find you? I am on Instagram at Chris Ambrose 80. I draw monsters and different kind of stuff like that. So if you want to see some art, check me out. And Walker, where can we find you? You can follow me into 2021. Uh, I promise that this year is a lot better. It's a low bar. It is, but we'll clear it. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Shall we move on? Let us. Okay, so. Cabbage. Walker. Crisp lettuce. Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>